invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. We have, again, a somewhat lengthy portion of Scripture to read as we go through Paul's travel log in many ways. Uh, but we want to invite you to follow along. Acts chapter 27. We'll be reading the entirety of the chapter, all 44 verses. As we look at Paul's, most of Paul's trip, not quite get to Rome by the end of the chapter, but most of it. Acts chapter 27, I will be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's word declares. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. But when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. Now when much time had spent been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because of the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurycliton. Now when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, and running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on Sirtus sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we, drew the ship's tackle, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from your, the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. They, they began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and let them in the sea, and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosening the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the sailors' plan was to kill the prisoners, soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. This morning we have an opportunity to travel a little bit with Paul and discover the, uh, some of the intricacies of sailing and some of the hazards, well mostly the hazards we get to look at <laughs> sailing uh, that's out there. And uh, if you've ever been to sea for any length of time, I know several of you have, um, these are just the realities of what's out there. Um, one of the nice things when we were on our cruise in the Mediterranean is we had none of this kind of weather that we're going to be talking about today. And, uh, but boy, you could imagine the, what, it, what it would be like out there. Uh, I think we had one day of rough seas, and uh, there was a good number of people on board that um, were sending a lot of things overboard, um, <laughs> mostly from out of their stomachs. Uh, but uh, we want to sail with Paul. And in the midst of this, we were really just going to be picking out two facets of his interaction and relationship with the other men. Uh, his own small traveling group at this point, um, the soldiers, the Roman entourage, as well as sailors. And so we uh, aren't going to quite get to the residents of the islands. Uh, we're going to see that a little bit. We, we have a little glimmer of it, but we're going to press that into next week. 
uh, a little glimmer of the relationship that Paul has all along the way with various uh, individuals that are re- residents in the places they have stopped. Uh, but we really, really want to look this morning at his relationship on the boats, on, on the ships that they sailed. And in many respects, we might look at them as failed. Um, but ultimately, it did not fail because the testimony and the evidence became so impressive to at least some on board um, that it uh, led to salvation, at least of their physical lives, in the midst of a, of a disastrous end to a journey. Um, and from what evidence we could see, also an opportunity to share Christ and to see some uh, be responsive to that message and testimony. Before we look into this little travelogue, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and again for the opportunity to look in your word and we pray your spirit to direct us in it uh, that we might uh, see its power and its truth and it would be a simple thing for us to simply discount it as just a lot of uh, information about a trip that... uh, uh, doesn't provide us uh, much to draw on, but yet, Lord, we see that its purpose here is sure, and uh, we thank you for it, and we pray that we might be ready to uh, bring it into our lives and accommodate its truth and in its testimony, and we praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they're going to head to Italy. It's been delayed for a while now. Paul's appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he goes, having had opportunity to uh, share his testimony with Felix, and then Festus, and then King Agrippa and Bernice. And so they were somewhat uh, willing to let him go, but because of the circumstances around uh, the uh, first audience with Festus, it became obviously necessary for him to appeal to Caesar. And so, by God's will, and we need to recognize that because Paul has known for some time that God has uh, disclosed to him he will be in Rome, and that is where this missionary journey is going to take him. Uh, You might say, well, this isn't a missionary journey. This is his prison journey. Um, Same difference, uh, just because one was by his, somewhat by his will, although we see even in that, the Macedonian call, Paul wanted to go one direction. Spirit says, no, you're going this direction. Uh, and so Paul's been driven by the Holy Spirit throughout. And so here we find him similarly directed by God on this journey. And he is about ministry all along the way, as we're going to see. And so they're heading their way to Italy. They are going to be uh, uh, taking, wanting to take a very traditional route. And remember that Paul... Um, is not new to sea voyage. Um, If you have followed along in Acts at all, we have found him traversing this same area regularly. In fact, uh, two and a half years earlier, remember, he made the trip to Jerusalem from this very uh, direct route uh, when he came to visit from Ephesus. And so it says that their intention was to go back that same way, Um, They were just going to go along the coast of Asia. Uh, They were going to... Every intention, every plan was that this would be a fairly direct voyage for them. 
And uh, we are given some information by Luke about who is involved here. And uh, we begin by looking at his main captor, they have, uh, who has responsibility over not only Paul, but some other prisoners. So we have uh, not a prison ship. And that needs to be very clear. This is not a prisoner galley um, that you might have think of from Ben-Hur or something. That they're all down there rowing. Um, that is not what this is. These are not uh, necessarily condemned people. Um, but rather, these are individuals who are being transported uh, to Rome for trial. So they are not condemned people. This is not a prison ship. Um, they are simply traveling on whatever ships are available. And we're going to see them pick up another one, an Alexandrian ship, in a little bit. And uh, they're not, uh, while they're in custody of this Julius, this uh, centurion, uh, and they certainly don't have their full liberty, uh, they are still not fully condemned. And so we find that uh, they're going to be given some liberties, and we're going to see those liberties exercised, uh, particularly by Paul, but even by Luke and others. And it might surprise you to find Luke on board, as well as, um, as Luke shares with us in verse 2, uh, with Aristarchus. And Aristarchus, we know, is one of the traveling companions. He's from Thessalonica, uh, and, and uh, he is not about to let Paul go any further. And the evidence is that he's been with Paul all along, that he and Luke have been caring for Paul's needs. They weren't prisoners. Um, they could co- freely come and go. And so when you read earlier where it says that Paul was given liberty to entertain whoever came in and whoever went out could come and visit him, bring, care for his needs, well, two of the men that you should immediately think of is Aristarchus of Thessalonica and Luke. Those two were going to be regular daily visitors. Um, that was their charge. And Aristarchus takes it very strongly to heart. Um, were other men involved? Very probably. While he was in Caesarea, we certainly have other men that Paul traveled with, certainly were involved. But when it comes to the actual trip, uh, we only find Luke and Aristarchus traveling with Paul. And so he, in addition to the prisoners and the soldiers, we also have these men who would have paid their own passage uh, on this ship. And so they're all there together. Uh, we, of course, have the honor of sailors, the, uh, a complement of sailors that you would expect to have on there. And so they're ready to uh, head out. And uh, we find that already Julius recognizes who he's dealing with. I am certain he has been given clear instructions on who Paul is. Very likely that he would have been in the Colosseum uh, when Paul gave his defense, which, remember, was just uh, recently, um, because it says that as soon as they could, they set sail uh, for Rome after this defense with King Agrippa. And so Julius knows Paul. He knows he's a Roman citizen. He knows the affection, if you will, or at least the uh, declaration of innocence that has been given toward him from King Agrippa. Uh, and so he knows that this is someone that is not a threat. This, is a, this was a politically charged thing, not from the Roman end, but really from the Jewish sector. And so the, the centurion is pretty trusting of Paul. Uh, he has these two men to care for him. And it says it gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care when they landed in Sidon. And so when they land, he doesn't chain him to the boat. He doesn't bar him in a cabin. Rather, he says, oh, you know some people here? Let's go visit them. And he gives them liberty. And we're going to talk more about that, those visits, uh, more next week. 
but we find that they have an opportunity to, uh, when they come to shore, to go ashore and to visit the believers that are in that area, uh, perhaps some of the Jewish population as well, but they're able to make those contacts along the way. Um, This is how much trust uh, Julius has of Paul. And so as they head out um, from Sidon, and uh, their intention, of course, is to sail along the Asian coast, which is to the north of the, the northern section of the Mediterranean, and they are driven away from that course. Don't you love when the course you take doesn't work out so well? And you're driven in another direction, and the course they're intending is one that's off-traveled, it is one that is well known to the sailors. It is one that has a lot of traffic on it. And so there's lots of opportunities there. There are known ports, um, and none of those become available. And so at the end of verse 4, when we find that the winds were contrary. And our question is, well, God wants Paul and Rome, wouldn't the direct route seem to be the best plan? And the answer is no. It is not the best plan. For you and I, in our American idea of the conservation of energy and things like that, think that, well, the most direct route is the best route. Um, the, most, the easiest and the, the way to get it done the fastest is always the best. Um, is not necessarily the case. And in this instance, God has a work intended for Paul that is well uh, certainly going to be fulfilled in Rome, but there is a lot still to be uh, affected and ministered before we ever get there. And particularly with those that he has ministered to on board the vessel that they are to change to. And so we find that they are driven on a different course than intended. And I would contend that probably many of us have experienced that from time to time. That we believe that this is the course we should take and we are driven on another. Whether by the consequences of our own decisions or by the decisions of others or by circumstances far out of our control. The things we thought we would be doing and the direction we would be going change. And it seems the winds are against us. But they aren't really against us. They're against your plans. And there's a difference. And this difference we want to point out very clearly is that while we often say, how, why is God working against me? Why am I beating my head against the wall? Why are these things not falling in place for me? Um, what we are really saying is, why aren't they falling in place from my limited perspective and my intentions and plans? And there's a distinction between your plans and intentions and what you think is best for yourself and reality of what God knows is best for you. When we begin to accept that disassociation of us from our plans, (laughs) we can begin to appreciate the work of God in our lives. And I would contend, be thankful and unafraid. That most of our anxiety and most of our Uh, consternation over things not going our way, most of our dismay and even sometimes despair, um, most of our frustration 
is because we have wrapped ourselves into our plans, often without even considering God's part in it. We're going to see that evident on the on ship. It's going to be evident these people aren't thinking in terms of God's plans at all. They're just thinking of what seems favorable. They want to head down an easy road and the, the, the way that's familiar and, and just things that are comfortable. I just want it to be comfortable on this trip. This is the normal way we go. This is how it should be. Um, this is familiar and uh, safe. And that's the way we want to travel most of our days of our life. And God seems to come in and give us contrary wind, doesn't he? But it's not contrary to you. It's not against you. It is rather for you. And we need to recognize what it is contrary to is your plans, your thoughts, your intentions that too often do not include God in their formulation. That in our devising of what our life is going to be like, we seldom give a lot of thought to what the Bible describes our lives should be like. And because we're Americans, we have bought into fully the American dream, which of course is um, a house, two cars, uh, 14 electronic screens. Uh, some we carry with them, some are stationary. They have to be in our cars too now. Um, uh, when we were in Michigan, I would be saying a cabin on the lake and a boat. Um, that's, that was when we were living in Michigan, everybody had a boat and a cabin on the lake in the UP. Couldn't go there in the winter because it was like eight feet of snow every winter. But uh, we all had this dream that that's what we should have and everything should go wonderful. We should have ease, comfort, and uh, everything should fall our way. And after all, that's how it goes in the movies. And any problems we have should be able to be solved in 30 to 55 minutes because that's what happens on TV. Anything that happens contrary to that we begin to get angry. And that anger is generally focused, whether you intend it to be or not, to God. For he is the one who blows the wind, contrary to your plans. And when that happens, how are you going to respond? Well, I do not deny that contrary winds create difficulties. In fact, that's one of the words that I'm going to pull out here. <laughs> As we read through, the word that kept coming up is, with difficulty we did this, with difficulty we did that, with difficulty we're going to go around this shore and, and, and this island, and we're, going to, and we're going to sail slowly, it says in verse 7. Um, we, we couldn't proceed. We, we tried to, every mechanism of man, of every sailor knows, well, if a storm is coming from a certain direction, get on the other side of the island from the storm, let the island itself provide you some protection. And how many times do we see them trying to use that tactic to avoid these storms and to think they can weather them and, and, and get back to their original course and fulfill their original interests. But we find that every time they do, they keep coming into difficulty. They keep coming into more trouble. And we find them uh, using up the time they have, the window of opportunity they had for a smooth sailing journey along the northern 
edge of the Mediterranean, and now they're stuck way out in the middle of the Mediterranean and in trouble. They come to a shore, they come to a place called Fair Havens. Isn't that nice? Sounds great, doesn't it? But we find out that Fair Havens isn't that fair after all. Sounds good. Fair Havens. This is a place we can hole up in and and be safe. But we find that instead, um, they're going to go. Why? Because from their perspective, they said the harbor was not suitable to winter in. The majority advised to sail from there. And uh, so Fair Havens wasn't going to be a place they were going to stay. Even though they had stayed a long time there, they realized they couldn't winter there. And so on they're going to go. The contrary winds have changed their plans. And for some on board, it's going to almost ruin their lives. From a human perspective, from a perspective of commerce, from the perspective of fulfilling your responsibilities and duty as a Roman soldier, it is threatening all of that. So we find them in verse 9 through 12 here at Fair Havens making a decision to move on. In the midst of this is where Paul's testimony begins to be heard. We already have seen that he has developed a relationship with Julius, the centurion, sufficiently to give him liberty um, at the ports. Since they're at a port, we assume again that Paul has that same kind of liberty. And he is involved, and this might seem strange to us, he is intimately involved in the conversation about whether what the plans are for the future. Julius has brought him into this uh, meeting, if you will, and they are trying to make a decision. And I want to address your decision-making when the winds aren't going your way. When the winds aren't going your way, when your plans for your week or your month or your year or your life have been thrown up against the rocks, have been blown off course, um, and you begin to reassess the situation, uh, how are you approaching that reassessment? And we want to talk about that. Here Paul comes in as an unlikely source of information. Uh, He's not a sailor, but he's been to sea quite a bit. He doesn't have authority. He's not one of the soldiers. And yet he speaks as one with authority. He has been brought in as one of the most unlikely element in making these decisions, yet he's going to become the most critical element because he's uh, coming at it from a whole different perspective than everyone else. Their perspective for the sailors is, we know the sea, we know sailing, and and we're going to try our best and do what is reasonable and what has worked in other times. The soldiers have their perspective, and that is that we got to get these prisoners either to their destination, or dead. We cannot let these guys get loose. We have a charge upon us. Paul's perspective is one that's totally distinct. He has a level of confidence, not in his own abilities, not in the seafaring 
tactics of the sailors. Um, and his charge is very distinct from the soldiers that doesn't ever include the death of others, except maybe his own. He knows that he has a charge to be in Rome. What a confidence when you know the end, right? Um, it's really hard for me after I've seen a movie to get on edge during a movie when I've already watched the end. Or reading, I, I use movie, but when you're reading a story and you read the last chapter, oh, that's how it ends. Okay, now I can relax and read the rest. I hate those people. I have never done that in my life. That's just wrong. And I, Sometimes I give out books and I want to take out the back chapters, last two chapters, and say, come get it when you've read the rest of it. Um, but we read that end and we want to see the end so that we're not quite so nervous during the beginning and the middle. And, and uh, the fact is, is that once you know the end of the matter, you can have a confidence and a settledness and a peace in the midst of the storm. And so Paul knows the end. He knows he's going to get to Rome because God has already revealed that to him through the Holy Spirit. So he has a, a settledness, a confidence that, that the contrary winds don't, don't un, unmoor me. They don't take me and, and, and put me in a tizzy. They, they simply don't move me like that. I simply adapt to the fact that how God gets me from here to Rome is in his hands. It's taken a weird course already. I've had to go through getting beat up in Jerusalem in the temple area uh, to being shipped off with an armed guard of Caesarea to having to answer to Felix Festus and the King Agrippa. Um, it's just, and to all the prominent people of Caesarea. Uh, it's gone strange already. Why shouldn't it go a little stranger now? But how the path goes. I trust in the Lord because he's revealed to us the end. For Paul, the end of this journey was Rome, and he knew it. And there was no fear in the intermediate steps. And even when it goes contrary to everyone else's intentions and plans. And so it is. We know the end, don't we? Hopefully you're not wrapping your life up too tightly in the things of this world that when they're taking away, when they don't go your way, that you come to a place of despair or anger that would bring you to deny your God. For we know the end. It has been revealed to us in his word what the conclusion of all matters is of, on this age, on this earth, and for each man. And we who have trusted in Christ as our Savior know the end. First of all, we know the, what is the purpose, the end of our life. That is, the purpose of our life is to glorify God. We find in scriptures that we have opportunity to glorify him both in plenty and in want, Paul says. Uh, whatever condition I'm in, whatever state, I am content. And this brings glory to God. And so I will serve him, whether in plenty or whether in want, whether, in, in, uh, uh, whether I'm, I'm imprisoned or free, uh, whether things are going my way or not going my way. The end of man is to glorify God, and we who acknowledge him as our Savior and Lord understand that that is our purpose, that is their end, is to glorify him. Secondly, we know the end in terms of chronologically what our end is, do we not? 
we know that the end for men is death. But Jesus Christ comes and delivers us from it. And now our end is life through his sacrifice. And when that's your end, when God has secured your end, why are we full of fear on how he gets us there? The answer to that question is because we have put more confidence in our own plans than in the one we call Lord. We trust our long-range goals more than His. And we look around at this world rather than the next as our home. And this is why we become so distraught when things don't go our way. Even though the Scriptures makes it clear that we live in a sin-stained world that will almost never go your way even when it is going your way. That we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. And so we're given that instruction. We are told that our family are going to hate us and seek to abuse us, and that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength regardless. He's given us all that instruction and warning, all that preparation, so that when things don't go our way here, we recognize that my way wasn't set in stone anyway. Because I surrendered my way to his way. Remember, that is the, the... means by which we have identified Christianity in the book of Acts. What's it called? I'm a follower of the way. (laughs) That's not my way. That's not the church's way. It's not pastor's way. It's not Paul's way. It's God's way. The way of Christ. I'm going to follow after him that if they hated him, they should hate me. And so Paul, because he knows the end of this journey, has a confidence that while we have contrary winds, while we have difficulty, while we are, are, are off schedule, we're way behind schedule by this point, um, I know the end. And so I can trust the Lord to direct us. And in fact, God, by revelation, is going to give Paul extraordinary direction. And it begins right here in Fair Havens. In verse 10 it says, Man, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only the cargo and ship, but also our lives. When a man like Paul says, I perceive, (laughs) pay attention. Whether this is by divine revelation or simply by hunches, which I don't really hold to, uh, by experience, by uh, the mature approach to what's going on and just the history of, of that everything's gone against us so far. And if we don't at some point give some recognition to the fact that this is a voyage that God is in control of, um, how can things ever go better? And so we have this declaration by Paul that if you leave here, this is not going to be good. You're walking into disaster. We're going to suffer loss.
Now you can just imagine the others listening to this. Oh, this is a prisoner who just doesn't want to go to his trial. He wants to just put it all off for his own interest, but that's not the case. And yet that could have easily been the response of the, of the others. And the centurion Julius, who had given him liberty and respected Paul greatly, has to make a choice. Ultimately, it's his decision. And he has this man of God who gives this declaration, and we have the sailors, ship's captain, helmsman, if you will. And he has to decide who to listen to, and he is not quite far enough along on his journey to listen to the right people. Let's put it kindly like that. Between listening to Paul and listening to the helmsman, he weighs that out and says, well, this guy knows sailing. He has all that understanding of the sea. He knows about the coasts around here and the harbors. He knows He knows sailing. And so I'm going to trust this guy sailing. What does this guy know? Well, he knows the God who made the seas <laughs> and who controls the winds. And uh, he is the one who is at peace when all others are not. And he knows the truth. And he has given you an access to his, I believe, revealed information that God has given to him. In verse 11, it says the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Now Paul has to decide himself how to deal with these people, and he's not going to just, they deserve it. He's not going to give up on them, but rather he's going to try to protect them later on. But I want you to recognize that today we fall in the same category of Julius the Centurion many times. In my own experience as a pastor, I see many times that people will ask me for advice and then pretty much ignore it because a lawyer told them something different, because someone else told them something different, an economist, an advisor. Sometimes it's not even them. It's just a coworker or a fellow teenager tells them something different. And they choose to be more persuaded by them. When we are confronted with decision making, my my challenge to us is how often do we consider God's part in your decisions? Normally, here's how people come to me. Pastor, I prayed about this and I'm at peace over it. And I'll say, what in the world gave you peace about that after praying? Well, I just feel at peace about it. And I'm like, that's what I tell them. I say that even on the phone. That's what I think about your feelings of peace because you prayed about it. By the way, the things they're describing for me were sin they wanted to commit. But they felt at peace about it because they prayed. So yes, 
Those aren't generic decisions. Those are decisions between right and wrong. I feel at peace so you can't judge me because I prayed. And then I end up having another conversation with them, sometimes days later, sometimes hours later, sometimes years later, and they come with the wreckage of their life, the wreckage of that decision. Sometimes they ask me and challenge me what happened, and I just quickly tell them what happened. And yes, I am not afraid to say I told you so. By the way, I think Paul says it in this text we read. A little bit farther along, verse 21. He says, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) You should have listened to me and never left Crete. The centurion is confronted with, here's the world's strategy. And the world says, this is smart. This is This is how to get ahead. This is how to resolve your problems. These are the choices we recommend. And and even today in the newspaper, or maybe it was yesterday's newspaper, I was just breezing through it real quick, and and I looked at this in the financial page. How to get your teens used to credit cards. Six points or five points of how to introduce credit cards to your teenagers. The best way to introduce credit cards to your teenagers is cut them up in front of them. Let them use it for glitter around their room. So here's the world's perspective. This is, this is the wise of the world and their approach and, and their influence and their recommendations, their advice. And then we have over here God's word. And by the way, if you ask me for advice that isn't accordance, that I can't bring you out scripture, I'll tell you that. I'll say, well, if it were me. But many times, I can go to Bible verses and say, well, this says you're supposed to do this. Especially when it's dealing with your money. The Bible has so much to say about handling your finances um, and having to do with your family and choices that you're making in, in, in your life and career. And, and I have scripture upon scripture, but they are more persuaded by these others. And the result is disaster. And rightly does Paul say, you should have listened to me back there in Fairhavens. If only you'd listened to me then. And my challenge is, what are you more persuaded by? Your feelings? The advice of the world? or the principles of God? What are the heaviest influences in your decision-making process? Notice I didn't say your prayers. We have so abused that that it's worthless. I prayed about it, and I'm at peace. People have said that to me about adultery. I prayed about it, I'm at peace. <laughs> uh-uh. When we talk about the decision-making influences, 
Are you following the principles laid out clearly in God's word that God has decreed and declared to us? Knowing that when things don't go your way, they are still going God's way for your good. This whole account throughout chapter 27, I'm not going to get through it all, I can tell. Um, The whole account 27 should just draw from the back of your memory banks and bring forward the account of Jonah. Remember? He didn't like God's plan for his life either. (laughs) I don't really want to go to Nineveh. So I'm going to resolve this. And finally, he convinces the sailors. The sailors are like, no, this can't be. No, I didn't obey God, and now we're in trouble. And, and no, we're going to throw over all the stuff. We're not going to just sacrifice you. And Jonah says, no, it's not going to work. They do it anyway, because that's what everyone does. Finally, Jonah convinces them. No, the only way out of this is for me to go overboard, toss me, and off he goes. Paul's in a place where they need to listen to his advice, and he knows it. He has had the revelation of God share with him, and finally God is going to allow him to interject when all is lost, except for the ship and the men and some food. They have done everything they cap- could. They've, they have exercised every uh, technique, every uh, ability of sailors to guard a ship and to get through a storm. They have done it all, and the sailors themselves are already ready to abandon ship. They're going to leave these soldiers and prisoners on. Um, Paul recognizes the danger of that. Um, but God, in the midst of all this, God is revealing to Paul Be at peace. I have a plan. And the centurion, bless his heart, learns. (laughs) And when Paul says, I told you so, the centurion is listening. Yeah, we should have really listened to that guy. We should have listened to Paul and not the owner of the ship, not the helmsman, not these experienced sailors that claim to be know something about the sea. This man knows the one who controls the seas. I should have listened to him. And by the time we get into the depths of despair of this voyage, not only is the centurion ready to listen to Paul, but most of the men are too. And Paul comes on after many days, after they have tried Now, for what, two weeks, they have tried to bring everything under control their way. And isn't that just like us? When the contrary wind blows, we're not going to surrender ourselves and seek God's path to correction. We are going to try to fix it our way. I know my way out of this trouble that I created by my bad decision making. And all you're doing, going to do is extend the trouble. That's all you're going to do. It's just going to be extended. And now here they are. It's been a couple of weeks. They haven't really eaten. They're, they're in trouble. They, the, the storm has not subsided. They haven't uh, seen been able to determine where they even are in the sea. They could be anywhere. They're in complete despair. 
And finally, Paul finds opportunity to press his case. And yes, some of you know that I pray that way. Lord, bring them to the end of their ways so that we can show them your ways. Bring them to the end of their ways. They've tried everything. They've tied the ship together. In the modern version, they've, they've used many rolls of duct tape, done everything they can, humanly speaking. And they're just as worse off, or maybe worse, than before. Now that you're at the end of your ways, are you ready to try God's way? And let me share with you that God's way very, very, very seldom will be the world's ways. <laughs> so seldom that I would almost say never. So, what is the, what, what is the world's way? Well, save my own skin. Sailors are going to do that. They tie the skiff over under the pretext of we're going to set anchors to the bow, to the prow, I'm sorry, to the prow, to hold the front. We got the back down with four anchors. We're going to put some anchors in the front, and we're going to hold the ship in place. Um, but their real intention, because they saw just how desperate the case was, was that they were going to get away on the skiff. I don't know where they thought they were going to go, at the, you know, but they are going to get away, and, and you guys go run up to an island. You go ram it into the sea and, and die. We're not going to do that. They saw the dangers that were there, and they said the best way out is for us to watch out for our own skin. And the world will tell you that, that that's the solution, is watch out for number one. Take care of yourself first. And Paul comes in and says, no, either we stay together or we're all dead. And notice that there's no discussion anymore. The centurion has learned. I'm going to listen to this guy. I'm listening to Paul. I'm not listening to the world. I'm not listening to my own interests, my own feelings. I'm listening to this guy. And if that's what he says, boom! And he just... Now there's no escape for anybody. We're all here together. His fellow guards are getting ready to kill all the prisoners. And, and the centurion says, no, we're in this together. I'm going to protect Paul's life. Um, and we need to... We're going to all survive this because God's man said so. All built upon a revelation. Verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. Indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And he's willing to share this outrageous testimony to everybody. With the declaration that says, Therefore, take heart. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. And fundamentally, when it comes to the decision-making that we are engaged in, and we have all of these conflicting influences trying to help, quote-unquote, help us make our decisions, rarely do we give much credence to God's Word in that decision-making process. And in fact, sometimes it's just downright the opposite of what we think we need to do. I've 
taken and worked with people in financial trouble, and the first thing I tell them is that you're not honoring God with your money, so why should God be helping you at all? And so the first thing here, I'm in a financial pinch, and you want me to give money away? Yep. You're nuts. That can't work. But it does every time. It does. Every time. It's not the only thing. I mean, there's a lot of other aspects of it, but we I worked through this, and, and no, that can't work. And people walk away from me, and I say, okay. And they go off and... No, my, uh, the solution is to declare bankruptcy. I was like, you don't need to do that. But the world says that's the easy way out. Tie your ship up with a cord and stay in the storm. Okay, that's the way you want it. You see, we have something we declare as truth, and that is God's word. And it should be the, that which moves us to decisions. It should be the primary influence in our decision-making process. I mean important decisions, and I mean even less important decisions. Not only what you're going to give your life over to and who you're going to marry and what you're going to be, but what you're going to do for your entertainment this afternoon. It should be the primary influence in all those decisions in your life. It should be a deciding influence on what you do on Saturday night. Every Saturday evening, at my dinner table, I pray a prayer. And that prayer is, Lord, work in our family and our church family to do something. I ask God to do something in your life every Saturday night. I pray that the Lord prepares your heart for Sunday morning. Prepare our hearts to receive your word tomorrow. Because a lot of how effective Sunday morning is depends on what you've been doing Sunday night. Saturday night, I mean. Prepare our hearts to receive your word tomorrow. Does that matter? Oh, yes. Every one of those decisions in your life, God's word should have primary influence. Not at a last ditch when we've really already made our plans. Now let me see if I can find a verse to back that up. <laughs> but rather as a primary place. And that's why if you're not spending time in God's word on a regular basis, and it's generally speaking a foreign book to you, then your decision making is no different than the world's. You can't be claiming to be a follower of the way when you don't even know where the way is. And so we find Paul here saying, I have this divine revelation. You should take heart. And the centurion from here on out is going to listen. And by means of his leadership of responding to Paul's declaration of here's what we must do. And now it's, uh, I believe God. It's going to be just as he said. I believe God, I trust him, and it's going to sound ridiculous, but we're all going to stay together. We're not going to let the, anyone escape. We're not going to kill the prisoners. We're, not, we're going to run this thing aground, and we're all going to be safe. 
And the sailors are like, yeah, right. <laughs> this guy's obviously never been shipwrecked. He had been before, by the way. But they didn't know that about him. And so we have a guy that believes God. If I follow God's principles and revelation, I'm safe. And if you'll follow me, you'll be safe too. So you follow Paul while Paul follows the revelation because he believes God. Did the centurion at this point believe God? No, but he believed Paul. He recognized Paul as one who had communicated to them wisdom. And he sees the disaster that has been struck because they ignored him. And now this one, and, there's, and I believe there's a reason he's named in this book, is because he responded. And I think he was well known to the church in the early years. Julius, the centurion, much like Cornelius, the other centurion. This man responded, and he was going to not only deliver Paul, he was going to follow that revelation that's given to Paul. He believed it too. He says, I may not have had the revelation, but if you say that's the way it is, I trust you. And by the work of that leadership, responsive to the man to whom God had given revelation, 276 people on that ship were saved from death that day. Sailors had their plans. The soldiers had their plans. But by Paul believing his God and the power of his testimony in a centurion who recognized that wisdom and the evidence of the truth of that God delivered them. And it was that they all escaped safely to land, is how we end verse 44 of chapter 27. And praise the Lord for one guy who used to be influenced by the world and became influenced instead by the revelation of God. You want your plans to be God's plans, then you're going to have to conform them to the revelation of God, His Word. And when contrary winds come up, you will be unafraid, unmoved, because ultimately you're not trusting your plans, but God's. And you know the end. The end of your life, the purpose of your life, and the end of time, the end of your days, what they mean. It is when we conform ourselves to God's word, even when it seems the wrong thing to do, it seems like, well, no, the world's doing this, but you're saying God calls us to this, and he does. And there is wisdom the world never understands. But there is testimony after testimony after testimony of those who have learned. I tried it man's way, I tried it my way, And it was disaster. But God's way, even in the midst of the storms, even in the midst of contrary winds, even in the midst of all these difficulties being surrounded by all of these other people in the boat, God's ways 
bring deliverance. God's ways take away fear. God's ways are that those that we should trust in and not those of men. Oh, that we would know our scriptures better, that we might make our choices in accordance with his revelation and not with the influence of being persuaded by those with seeming knowledge and authority. which do not have knowledge or authority compared to believing in God that it will be just as he said it would be. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and its comfort and challenge and encouragement. And Lord, we confess before you we have made far too many plans without you involved in them. Not just in lip service prayers, but in true study of your word of what you want from us as parents, as managers of various resources that you put at our disposal, as workers in the workplace, as as citizens of this land. Lord, we have so seldom looked to your word for guidance, so often looked toward the supposed wisdom of men and to our own interests and feelings. And Lord, we pray for your forgiveness. And where that has been the case within our church, we confess it freely and beg for your cleansing. We might look into the precepts of your word and apply them, though they radically differ from those of the world. And often even might Bring us into conflict with the world. Lord, help us to live your word. And Lord, we do pray for some perhaps even here today who are living with the consequences of that disregard for your precepts and their decisions. Lord, help us to be like the centurion and humble and willing to see our mistake and choose a better influence to advise us in the journey of this life. Praise says in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.